You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Youth and Young Adults Minister, Kirk McKenzie. reminisce a little bit about my school days. Uh, I used to have, play this game with my friends when we were walking to or from school. I didn't have a name, but if you were to give it a name, it would be called I'm Better Than You. And the way it worked was that it was one person's job to start a sentence, I'm better than you because, and give you a reason why they were better than you, and then you had to respond with a reason that you were better than them. So, you know, my tall friend would say something like, well, I'm better than you because I'm tall and I can reach stuff off shelves that you can't reach. And I go, no, I'm better than you because I'm short and I don't like bang my, my knees on the table every time I get up and I can sort of easily fit on the bus and I'm not smashing my knees into the seats in front of me. Or it could be like, you know, a, a blonde friend would say, well, I'm better than you because I'm blonde and I read somewhere that blondes have more fun. And another person might chime in and go, well, I'm better than you because I back for Richmond and they just won the grand final. And so this is how the game would go, right? This is just, I'm better than you. And most of the time, it was silly, like, and it was acknowledged between the people playing it that this is just silly, we're just clowning around, it's just jokes. But every now and then, someone would bring out an I'm better than you line that was a bit more serious, that made you feel like they really did think they were better than you. And here's the reason. And of course, how would you respond? With the reason you believed you were better than them. And so it did get quite intense and did become as a bit of a competition at times. Well, in today's passage that Teresa just read for us from Luke chapter 18, I encourage you to keep it open. Uh, There are two men and one of them seems like he's up for a game of I'm better than you. So what I want to do is look at these two guys in the story uh, and see what we can learn from them. Both of them have come to the temple to pray. So there's some sort of prayer meeting that's going on. And uh, so they're ready to talk to God, both of them. Uh, One is a Pharisee, which is a common word in the New Testament. And a Pharisee is a a Jewish leader in the time. uh, And he probably knew a lot about the Bible, at least the bits of the Bible that had been written up until that point. And he probably would have been fairly well respected by people who go to prayer meetings because he was a religious leader and sort of known for that sort of thing. Um, And then we have the tax collector. Now, a tax collector would be one of the least popular people in the city because uh, they were basically, well, they took money off you. That was their job, to take money off you to collect tax. So you're not popular to start with, but they're also known for lying and cheating. They were not considered to be trustworthy. And what's more, they were working for the enemy. You see, in this city, the Romans had come in with their armies, pointy things, etc. They'd taken over. um, And uh, so if you were a tax collector, you were working for the enemy government that had came over and killed people and taken their homes and all this sort of thing. And so you were just, you know, you you betrayed your people. And I can't really think of a modern day example of this, like, you know, I mean, Melbourne's not really been invaded by a big army or anything like that. So it's like, all right, how does this work? Um, uh, Footy. Well, it's footy, right? Lots of footy happening this week. So I thought of my old mate, Travis Cloak. So Travis Cloak used to play for Collingwood, and he wore the black and white, and he kicked a lot of goals for Collingwood. He was a very good player for Collingwood. 
end of last year, he said, you know what, Collingwood, I don't want to play for you anymore. I want to play for the Bulldogs, which is a team that I barracked for. And so that all happened in the trade period and so on. Cloak went to play for the Bulldogs. And funnily enough, the first game of the year, the AFL scheduled the Bulldogs to play against Collingwood. It's an amazing coincidence. And so uh, I was at the game, and I've just got a little clip of how people responded to Travis Cloak when he was lining up for his first shot on goal. Let's have a look. Colin Pelly now, open forward into the ground. Have a look at this. Cloak's there, Beatrice. He thought about playing on, but he is a massive kick of the footy. Listen to the crowd. Look at the supporters. They're angry. Cloak has never been under this much pressure. But the dogs will say, as long as they keep winning, it doesn't matter. Travis Cloak, how much he would love this. Very close to the man on the mark. He's mungered it, but he's got it. Have a look at this. Look at the dogs get around the big man. A famous name. <laughs> Just wanted to finish on Joffa, sort of like, ah. Oh. Okay, so that's probably the closest you know, equivalent I could get to tax collectors in just the boo. Like, I was there. That's the loudest boo I've ever heard. Um, but, you know, just this like idea of this, guy, this guy's betrayed us. He's, the, he's gone to play for the enemy. And tax collectors would have been considered like that in a much more serious way. Um, and, and people treated them very badly. So already, with the Pharisee and the tax collector, we've got two very different people at the meeting. Then they stand in very different places. So the Pharisee stands right at the front. <laughs> Can one of the tech team close that? Because it's about to come around and smack me in the face. Um, so so uh, they... Where was I? What was I talking about? The guy standing at the front. Uh, and he was well lit. And uh, standing by himself, he would have been easy to see, easy to hear. The focus on him at the front of the prayer meeting. The opposite happens with the tax collector who stands all the way near the back. In fact, if you got there before him, you might not even notice that he came in uh, or you might have told him to go to the back because he's a tax collector and you don't like him and you don't want him to sit near you. So he's at the back and he's also, um, he's got his head down, so he's refusing to look up and he's beating his chest, which in those times was a sign of regret that he, you know, he was upset about something. So if you, were, if you or I were at this prayer meeting, you would have gone, this, these are two very different people and they're behaving very differently at this meeting. Now, prayer is about talking to God. This is a prayer meeting. They're both there to pray. So what do these blokes say to God? Like, what's the focus of their words? Well, the Pharisee starts off comparing himself to other people. So if you have a look in verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, to be, this seems a bit harsh, but to be fair, we all do this. Like, we all, in our minds think that we're better than somebody else. You could easily think of someone you go to school with or work with or someone you see in the media or down the street or whatever who you have at one point thought, I'm a better person than them. I'm not recommending it, 
It's not a good thing to do, but I would say every person in the room's done it. So we all do it, so we can't be too judgmental as a Pharisee there. I would say, though, probably most of you didn't then publicly point that person out while they were in the room, right? So this is another, like, this is a whole other step. This is like, you know, you got that private sort of arrogant thought in your head, but this guy's like, oh, this is great. I'm going to tell everyone that I think that guy's a loser. So uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a harsh thing that he does here. Um, the, the only time you would actually do that, I think, you know, a normal person would do that, is in a game of I'm better than you on the way to school. Anyway, he then starts to point to himself as a positive example of how people should be and how, and how great he is. And so he says that in verse 12, he's very spiritual because he fasts, which is where you don't eat and instead of eating you pray, uh, which is a good thing in by itself, although the way he's doing it is quite arrogant and he's very generous, he gives a lot of his money away. And I don't know about you, but I'm always suspicious of people who when they give to charity then make a big deal of it and sort of point to themselves and point about how great they are and make a you know, big show of it. I'm just really cynical about that. Um, maybe I'm too cynical about it, but Jesus was a bit cynical about it too, and some other passages in the Bible point to him sort of being concerned that when we are generous, which is a good thing, that we don't just show off about it. So I think he's picking up that theme again in this passage, because um, this is a story that Jesus is telling. Anyway, the Pharisees, he's not necessarily lying Right? He, maybe he does fast like that. Maybe he is that generous. That's not the problem. The problem is he's just full of himself. It's just all about him. This prayer is all about him. In the space of four, ver- uh, two, there's two verses, right? He mentions himself four times in two verses. God gets mentioned once. The focus is all about him. In fact, if I was to summarize this prayer, I would summarize it like this. Dear God, thanks for me, I'm awesome. P.S. That guy's the worst. Like, that's really what he's saying, you know. Now, tax collector prays a very different sort of prayer. And he's just been criticized by the Pharisee, so it would be tempting for him to, you know, get one back on him and say, well, no, I'm better than you because of this, or you're the worst because of this. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't get into that sort of game. Um, He just says in verse 13, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When he calls himself a sinner, he's just admitting that he's done bad things. That's what a sinner is, someone who's done the wrong thing. Um, And he's saying, I'm a sinner. I am not awesome. This prayer is not all about how great I am. And he fully owns it, right? He doesn't say, I might be a sinner, or if I've upset someone, maybe I would be a sinner, or I'm a little bit of a sinner, or anything like that. He just owns it. This This is who I am. This is what I've done. And he's upset about it. So he's not like, Oh, yeah, I did it, but whatever. You know, I've done wrong things, but, you know, whatever. He's very upset about it. You know, he's beating his chest as this sign that he really does regret and he's ashamed of what he's done. Um, And then he doesn't want to look up. You know, uh, he can't can't look up. Now, look, when we pray here at St. John's, often um, people will, will drop their heads and, like, bow their heads. In fact... Uh, when Jacinta prayed for us at the start of the service, a lot of you did that, bowed your heads. In fact, sometimes when people lead us in prayer, which will happen later on in the service, they actually invite you to bow your heads in prayer. Now, I think possibly, this is a theory that I've got no proof on, possibly that habit comes from today's passage where the tax collector 
um, doesn't want to look up. His head is bowed, possibly. Um, but in Jesus' time, when he was telling this story, that would not have been the normal position to take when you were praying. Actually, the normal position to take would be to look up to the sky. You know, the idea that God's in heaven and the heaven's up there somewhere? It kind of comes from that. Um, you know, you're looking to where God is. Now, God's everywhere all the time and the world's round, so that doesn't really work. But do you know what I mean? Like, but, but it's still a nice idea. You, the heavens being the sky, you're looking up to heaven. You know, so you get the, get the point. And it did help people to pray and it did help people to focus on God. And it can still do it. It's still a legitimate position to take if you want to. Um, but that would have been more normal for people to pray like that. That would have been how the Pharisee most likely would have been praying. And the tax collector is doing the opposite. He's not looking at God. A bit like uh, for the parents or those who have little brothers and sisters, you know, when they come to tell you that they've done something naughty and they can't look at you. They're just sort of suddenly the carpet's really interesting, you know, and I need to move that bit of fluff around there or I need to check the pattern on my jumper, um, this sort of thing. Because it is hard to look someone in the eye when you're admitting that you've done the wrong thing. And actually, adults find it hard too. Uh, we're maybe a little bit more subtle about it than kids, uh, but we find it difficult. So um, I think this is going on for the tax collector. He doesn't want to look at God. He doesn't want even to look at the people around him. He's ashamed of what he's done. Um, and then what he does is he asks for mercy. He asks for forgiveness. Now, um, forgiveness is a really great word to teach kids, like uh, it's a, trying to help them understand uh, what Christianity is all about because it's right at the heart of everything that we believe. So when you forgive someone, you love them even though they've done the wrong thing. And you don't pretend that they haven't done the wrong thing. You say, I know you've done the wrong thing, but I choose to love you anyway. And when we forgive each other, that's what's happening. When God forgives us, that's what's happening. And this tax collector asks God to forgive him. He knows he's done the wrong thing. Ask God to love him anyway. And that's it. He doesn't then go and say, oh, by the way, though, God, there's somebody worse than me over there. That's it. That's where, he's, that's where it ends. Now, at the end of this story, if we look at the two guys, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee gets thumbs down from Jesus, as Jesus summarizes the story, and the tax collector gets the thumbs up. In verse 14, Jesus said it's the tax collector who went home justified. Justified means you are right with God. Now, I've got a question for everyone. Given that that's Jesus' conclusion, that the Pharisees like, gets a thumbs up, uh, sorry, the tax collector gets a thumbs up, Pharisee gets a thumbs down, who feels good about that? Anyone feel good about it? I do. A few people are like, oh, what's he getting at? Don't you feel good about it because like the arrogant guy who thinks he's better than everyone else gets cut down at the end of the story? Like that feels good. Like that's the way a lot of good stories go is the really arrogant person at the end uh, is humbled. And so um, you, you, we're meant to go with that and we're, we're meant to feel that from this story, absolutely. But there's more to it than that. Um, it's not just taking satisfaction that an arrogant person is humbled. It's also, that, that's only half the issue. Jesus says in verse 14, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So when you exalt something or someone, you're holding it up as very important. And when you humble some, something or someone or yourself, then you're pushing it down as less important. 
So Jesus is saying, if you push yourself up there, God's going to bring you down. And if you lower yourself, then God will bring you up. So followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus' teaching are... Uh, and stories like this are to live lives of humility, to be humble people. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says that we are to consider others better than ourselves. We're to love people in ways that we would like to be loved. And we're to make sacrifices for the good of others. That's humble. That's humility. We don't play, I'm better than you. And we don't think, I'm better than you. We lower ourselves in our own minds. Very important thing to do in life. But I also want to warn against false humility, which Christians are particularly good at. False humility is where you pretend that you're not good at things when you're actually good at them. Uh, False humility is where you basically lie and say, I'm the worst person ever, I never get anything right, I don't bring anything good to the world, uh, when in fact you do do some things, right? And you do bring some good things to the world. And so I think sometimes when Christians are trying to not be arrogant and not exalt ourselves and not push ourselves up, we then just end up lying. I'll give you an example of how this could work. Let's take Dustin Martin as an example, right? So he won the Brownlow medal earlier in the, in the week. Uh, he was judged best on ground yesterday, a bit controversially for mine. I thought Alex Rance was better on the day, but anyway, second best or, or best in the grand final. Very good at football. Uh, now, what would, would, uh, would it be humble for Dustin Martin to come out tomorrow and say, oh, I'm really not very good at footy? It's not humble. It's just lying. What a load of crap. <laughs> like, yes, yes, you are. Look what you just did yesterday, right? So that's not humility. So how would, how would Dustin Martin or an elite athlete like that um, be humble without lying? Well, they might say, well, yeah, I'm good at it, but I'm not perfect. I still make mistakes and... Um, actually, I stuff up in a lot of areas of life and some parts of life that you don't see me and I'm hopeless. And even though I'm good at footy, I still rely on my teammates and I still rely on coaches and other medical staff and so on to help me get through. And also, I was just born with natural talent that most people aren't born with. And uh, I didn't do anything to deserve that. I didn't make myself be born. That just happened. And so you see how that can suddenly become a more humble point of view. You're not denying that you're good at something, but you're putting it in perspective and you're fitting it all into something that's true. Now, if you're a more experienced Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, um, then I would be shocked if you haven't heard this passage before. Right? As far as the passages that are famous in the Bible, this is one of the big ones. Yeah? It's a great one to teach to, to little kids because it's actually pretty easy to understand from a young age. It's one of the first stories I ever told my um, daughter um, because it's, it can't, you know, kids can kind of get their head around it. So it's a fairly simple message. Be humble, don't be arrogant, right? But just because it's simple doesn't mean you should leave church tonight going, yeah, yeah, I'd heard it before, whatever. Because it's an easy message to understand. It's a really challenging one to live in the light of. It's a really challenging one to actually bring into the way you live, the way you think, and the way you pray. And actually, I find as I get older, like, you know, I became a Christian before some of you were born, right? So as I get older, I think it's actually more tempting to, be, to become arrogant because you have more experience than people who are younger than you. Um, and so you've got a bit more wisdom and you sort of know how some things work 
younger people sort of still work it out, but you're getting a bit older and you're like, oh, you know, how stupid. It, you know, they're not really working that out very well. And if, if, if only they knew what I knew then. But that doesn't make you better. It just makes you more experienced. You know, for those of you who maybe lead a life group, um, often when you go in and you lead a discussion about a, a passage in the Bible, you will probably or possibly be the most informed person on that part of the Bible because you've done a whole bunch of preparation and because you're the leader, you're probably more experienced in your faith than some of the people in the group. Does that mean you're better than them? No. It's just your good fortune that you have that experience at your point in life. So actually, I think that possibly this could get harder to be humble the longer you are a Christian. And it's something that we need to make sure that we work on as we grow in maturity. So please don't switch off and think, oh, I've got nothing to be challenged by because it's a simple message. And also, I would say humility, not that popular in our culture at the moment. Like, I guess it's respected a little bit, but mostly you're expected to pump yourself up. If you think about a job interview, humility doesn't go down that well. I'll give you an example. I went for a job interview at a chip shop, right? Just, I needed a part-time job. There's a chip shop down the road, had a sign in the window. I was like, I'll go in. And I tried to answer his questions in the interview truthfully and humbly, right? I'd, I'd recently become a Christian and I was trying to, trying to do this. And he got really annoyed with me that I wasn't like pumping myself up. Like I gave myself a 6 out of 10 for cleaning. You know, I had all these categories I had to give, give me, myself a score for. And I was like, I guess I'm clean, but I don't know what chemicals to use or which brush to use there or whatever. I've got no idea. Like I've never worked in a place like this. And... He was kind of annoyed that I hadn't given myself a nine and really pumped myself up. He's like, come on, encouraging me to lie about myself and to push myself up. So you might come across this as you apply for a job and, and this sort of thing. The temptation is to not be humble. And so when we are, we're pushing against the trends of our culture and what people expect from us. Okay, lastly, what does this story teach us about God? Jesus is telling the story. He wants us to learn something about God from this story. Well, it's very clear from this story that God does not keep score. He's not watching everybody, tracking the good things you've done or the stuff-ups you've made, you know, and putting you into category of good person or bad person. A lot of people think this is the way God works. That teaching is not in the Bible. It's not there. Uh, Jesus completely you know, goes against that teaching. He hates that sort of teaching. Um, logically, if God is real and the Bible is true, then God sees everything that we do and hears everything that we think. And he knows that we get up to some horrible things in our minds. You know, maybe we've got our actions a bit under control, but in our minds, we're doing shocking things. So God knows all that. Nobody's going to get into the good person category. It's not how it works. That's why he sent Jesus to deal with that sin, to deal with all our stuff-ups, to deal with all our weaknesses. That's why Jesus died on the cross, so that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will have their sin wiped away. It's not an issue. Sin replaced by love. You can receive God's love because the sin is out of the picture. He did that for tax collectors 2,000 years ago. He does that for people playing I'm better than you in 2017. And everyone in between. Jesus is giving us a really good glimpse of why he was on earth in the first place, why he rose again in the first place by telling this story. And what God wants us to do is to remember this when we pray. 
Prayer is not a performance proving how spiritual you are. Again, I think we picked this up from TV that people who are good at prayer, somehow they talk like Shakespeare or, or you know, they've at least got a Spanish accent or something. You know, like they're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of cool in that, in that literary sort of medieval way. And look, so that's fine. Like, you know, if you've got a Spanish accent, great. But just as pleasing to God is an honest, simple prayer like was prayed by the tax collector. It just hangs it all out there. It's not eloquent. It's not a long speech. It's just simple, straightforward. I think we need to embrace that sort of prayer as much as we possibly can. Um, honesty, seeking God's forgiveness, admitting our own sin. These are the things that please God. And what's great about it is as we humble ourselves and we admit before God that he's great and we're not, that actually Jesus says that is when God starts to lift us up. That's when he really blesses us. That's when he starts to give us um, uh, a sense that, that we have this great purpose in life and he, he wants to give us good things. So it works in a really nice way. You won't have a good prayer life if you think of it as a performance. It'll be a frustrating, stressful experience for you when you pray. But you will have a great prayer life if you just talk with God honestly, remembering that he loves you and that he forgives everything that you've done that is wrong. What I want to do now is give us an opportunity to do the type of prayer that the tax collector does, which is like a confession prayer. Um, there's going to be some words on the screen. I'm going to invite you to stand while we do this. So you want to stand now. Um, there'll be some words on the screen that we can say together. And then I'm going to I'll finish the prayer with, I'll read some stuff. So your words will be in yellow. We'll all read that together. My words will be in white. But between that, I'm going to leave some space for us just for you to, to let it sink in, you know, just like not move past this quickly. Um, to let the reality of the confession that we're making sink in. If you start feeling emotional, don't push that emotion away. The positive example we have is the tax collector who does feel emotional about his sin, and that's all good. You might even want to, as we pray, put your hand across your chest, you know, just as a symbol of, of the regret for your sin. It's going to be hard to put your head down while you're reading the words, <laughs> but when we finish reading the words together, you might want to put your head down and have that part of your posture as well. Now, and where we might have some visitors with us tonight, um, you don't have to do this. It's not compulsory. Nothing that we do at church is compulsory. You're welcome just to stand and listen to the prayer and sort of see what's going on. But if you'd like to be a part of it, um, then we'd really welcome you to do that. So let's have a look at these words on the screen. Let's pray them together. God of all mercy, we humbly admit that we need your help. We have wandered from your way. We have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us. Wipe away our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit so that we may live a new life to your glory. This we ask in the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. I'm just going to leave a long pause now for us to just reflect on that prayer.
God desires that none should perish, but that all should turn to Christ and live. In response to his call, we acknowledge our sins. God pardons those who humbly repent and truly believe the gospel. Therefore, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.